The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. And you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Amy Newmark. She is the publisher, editor-in-chief for Chicken Soup for the Soul series. And her new book is Chicken Soup for the Soul living with Alzheimer's and other dementias. And it's 101 stories of caregiving, coping, and compassion uh, for caregivers. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Amy. Well, thanks for having me on. It's a really important topic, so I'm really happy to be able to talk about it with your listeners. Yeah, it is. It's a key. It's a very, unfortunately or fortunately, I don't know, it's fortunate to have the book, but unfortunately it is a topic that affects millions and millions of people uh, just here in the United States. And uh, so caregivers, I've always had a, you know, as a social worker, uh, caregivers are sometimes the, the forgotten ones. We, we think of the person who's ill or sick, and obviously we have empathy and sympathy, but what about the caregivers? And that's what this book is all about, caregivers, Alzheimer's, dementia. So uh, let's start with the, the focus of the book specifically. I mean, 101 stories. Um, what, what came out of all of these 101 stories? What would you say were some of the key elements well, the key, the key is that by having 101 stories from, you know, 100 different people, you really get a variety of points of view and you get to meet people at all different stages of their Alzheimer's journey. And we also have stories from people who have been diagnosed with Alzheimer's as well as their caregivers. So you really get to see every point of view, which means it's very relevant for everyone in the Alzheimer's community at every stage because the total journey from diagnosis to the end can be five years, 10 years, 15 years. So uh, this is a great portable support group to have that entire time. And there were a few key themes that I noticed over and over again in the stories. One theme, and I've talked about this with people who, even people who have been caring for someone with dementia for years, and it's like an eye-opener to them, and that theme is don't try to correct the person who has Alzheimer's or another dementia. Just join them in their world. Join them in their reality. People fight. They're like, Mom, you, you weren't a firefighter. Mom, you didn't do that. Dad, you didn't run a company with 5,000 employees. It doesn't matter. You just go into their reality because you're not going to bring them back to yours, and you're also not going to bring them back and have them be interested in your son's soccer game or what you did at work the other day. And You know, Amy, you had mentioned, and I, I think there were several tips that obviously a lot, and this one that's really important, but when I, um, I was thinking about that uh, as you're mentioning this, because one of the things in social work is, you know, you do, you want to go where the client is or where the patient is, but at the same time, and I, if they have dementia, and I don't know if this is true for Alzheimer's necessarily, uh, you want to help them to 
you don't, I, I, this was maybe an old way of, of doing it, but you want to help them to be as realistic as they can so that you don't play into their fantasies. You kind of try to bring them back to reality. But th- what you're talking about is kind of the exact opposite of that, which I find interesting. Well, I guess, I mean, this is all based on advice from the Alzheimer's Association, but I guess the feeling is if they're not going to endanger self, endanger themselves, what harm is there? For example, um, one of the stories that we selected, and, we, and every single story was selected um, in collaboration with the Alzheimer's Association. So I, I think this book really represents the, the best tips, the best medical knowledge, the best practices that the Alzheimer's Association has right now today. So that's very helpful that you know that everything here has been vetted by the people who really know. Um, well, the then that's why it's really, yeah, it's, I want to say then it's really important because, um, you know, I guess dealing with Alzheimer's is, even though it's been around for a long time, it, in terms of how caregivers deal with their Alzheimer's loved ones, um, is that these things are new. I guess there's just new ways of, of dealing and, and making it easier for the patient and the family, which is what you're saying, and which the Alzheimer's Association is also saying. So anyway, yeah. go on. Yeah. The first story in the book is about a woman whose mother was already in a care facility and uh, thought that she had been an Air Force fighter pilot and that she had saved lots of children in some war, but she was bemoaning the fact that she hadn't saved more children. And she just was obsessed with this. And then she decided that the military had called her and told her she was going to receive a Medal of Honor for saving the children. And her two daughters just went along with it, and they actually went out and bought a little medal, and they drew up a certificate on their personal computer, and they had a luncheon for her for her birthday, and they presented her with the certificate and the Medal of Honor, and everyone in the restaurant caught on and applauded, and the woman was absolutely delighted, and they figured it was the last birthday that she was really going to enjoy, and there was really no harm in doing this for her. And I guess this practice is very much um, approved by the Alzheimer's Association because the way we made the book was it was a complete collaboration with the Alzheimer's Association, which is a really fabulous organization. And one of their editors, who's very up on everything, worked with one of our editors whose mother died from Alzheimer's. And the two of them went through and read the thousands of stories that were submitted for the book and then... I had the final say on what went in, but everything was approved by the Alzheimer's Association. In fact, every word in the book was approved by the association. Even the inspirational quotes that we put at the beginning of each story, every single one of those was vetted by the association, including by um, one of their top people, Angela Geiger, who was my co-author on the book. And so I feel very confident that this book does reflect the best current advice and knowledge of the disease. Well, then it is an, is an important book. I mean, not to repeat, but I mean, for those who are faced with, you know, having to care for someone with Alzheimer's, I think one of the strategies that was in the book or one of the strategies that was one of the stories, um, which I thought was really helpful uh, in terms of this family anyway, was be creative with your coping strategy. So there isn't just one strategy necessarily. I mean, we're talking about some of them, but this one 
uh, husband, I guess, his, and you, you can tell the story, but she lost her ability to read, and she couldn't read a menu, and she couldn't read a clock, and he was, like, really creative about how to make her, allow her to still stay involved in, in going to a restaurant and choosing the food, et cetera. So tell us about that story. That was a very touching story. Yeah. We had many stories like that where the spouses were unbelievably patient and loving and stuck by the side. Um, and th- this man, Fred, his wife had um, Alzheimer's, and as it got worse, he started carrying pictures of different food items so that when, we went, when they went to a restaurant, not only could she not read the menu, but if he even said the name of the food, she sometimes couldn't comprehend it. So he showed her pictures of food to help her select. And then he also found that she couldn't read a clock. And it, it does seem that one of the early symptoms of Alzheimer's is the inability to read an analog clock, a clock with hands. And so he took the, the minute and second hands off the clock, a wall clock, and he put little notes up at different places where the hour hand would point so that she would know what time she was going to have lunch, what time she was going to have dinner, because that was as much as she could handle in terms of reading a clock. Um, and, and, it, that, and the other thing that was touching about that was the spouses and whether the spouses have kept their loved one at home or put them in a skilled nursing facility, the stories were really great in the way that the spouses stuck by them right till the end and could always still see a little glimmer of their loved one through the fog of the dementia. And, and that was good. And that, another thing that, that that brought home to me was the fact that we had a number of stories where people reported that right at the end, their loved one would somehow emerge from the fog and all of a sudden know who was in the room, know their names again after not knowing them for years, comment on something in their lives as if all along their loved one did have some knowledge of the conversation that was going on and, and, and the loved one was retaining some of that information. And that made it very clear to me that you need to assume all along that something is getting through because it's, it's startling how many people report that right at the end their loved one emerges. And there were also interesting stories about people who seemed to be completely lost and then some form of art, whether it was music or dance or painting, would bring them right back out. It would somehow recreate a neural connection. And there was one story that a nursing home administrator wrote about this elderly gentleman who was living in the nursing home who looked perfect. And that's, of course, the case with many Alzheimer's patients. You could never tell from looking at them. They look handsome and their posture is erect and they're beautifully dressed. And this gentleman was like that but he was completely unresponsive at all times. And then one day they were started playing dance music from you know the era when he was young, and all of a sudden he got up, he asked his health care aide to dance with him, and he started ballroom dancing, talking to the aide, talking to all the other health care providers around the circle, around the dance floor, thanking them for taking care of him, saying he was sorry he hadn't been able to speak to them. And then when the music stopped, he sat down and he became completely unresponsive again. And for the next eight months, every time they wanted to talk to him, they would put on that kind of music, 
they would have a conversation with him. And that worked until one month before he died. Well, you have to wonder from that story, that's quite a story, whether or not, you know, with families, and this is kind of a, a I guess this could be a, something to um, look to, I guess, this story. Like, what is that little something that you can kind of, that's still there in the brain that you can attach yourself to, like like music and and, and or, or something that was way, way buried in the past that can bring the personality out again? That's a great story. Uh, and then this is, and you mentioned that this person was in a uh, nursing facility, uh, and in also one of the things you talk about in terms of the book, but, you know, families shouldn't be afraid to take the next step because I think sometimes they feel guilty when they can't at some point handle their loved one at home. And, you know, it's terrifying to think they're going to be in a nursing home, but sometimes that can actually help them to flourish because they, you know, they the nursing home can take better care of them, nutrition, hydration, and as you just described, mental stimulation. So I think that's really important to mention. I don't know if there were other stories, but really caregivers shouldn't be afraid to take the next step if they have to. That is so true, and it's really wonderful to read this Chicken Soup for the Soul book where the Alzheimer's Association participated and gives you permission to take that next step. And we have numerous stories about people trying to take care of their loved one at home and then taking that next step and moving their loved one to a skilled nursing facility. In some cases, and these were the lucky families, they actually got to talk about it with their loved one fairly early after the diagnosis and basically got the pre-approval from the loved one. One woman even reported that she and her mother went around and looked at different facilities and they chose the one she would move to eventually. Other people didn't have the luck of getting that pre-approval from their loved one, but this book certainly gives you the pre-approval from the Alzheimer's Association, and there are numerous stories where people talk about the day they knew they needed to take the next step. For example, one man reported that his father would call him occasionally and be confused. His father lived alone. He was a widower, and he would say, I I don't know where I am. I don't think I'm in my house, and then the son would say, Dad, look around you. Do you see the coffee table? Do you see the family photos? And his dad would say, oh, you're right. I am at home. One night, his father called him, and none of those techniques worked. And so the son had to drive quite a distance to his father's house, put his father in his car, make four right turns, meaning he was back at his house again, take his father back inside and say, now, Dad, I've brought you home. And at that point, Uh, this man and his siblings realized that their father couldn't stay home alone anymore, and at that point they moved him into a facility. It's wonderful when all the siblings agree, because often it's the siblings who disagree about it. That was my next question. Yeah, yeah, it is wonderful. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sometimes there's a sibling who has, I don't know, a different kind of relationship with that parent or unfinished business, and by keeping the person at home, they might feel that they're curing whatever the problem is in their relationship. I mean, siblings do fight over this. It's really great when they talk ahead of time and everyone agrees. And, of course, getting the buy-in of the parent is the best. But there weren't that many stories where the person with Alzheimer's really knew they had it. It seems to happen more when somebody has the younger onset Alzheimer's, getting it in their 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s. Those people seem to go and get a diagnosis because they're saying, what's wrong with me? whereas the older people don't always get the diagnosis. 
Well, it's kind um, of, it's under, I think it's understandable because some of the symptoms of old age, just simply, and I'm saying old age, you know, in the generic sense, would be the symptoms of all, Alzheimer's in your 70s and 80s. You may be forgetful. There are, you know, the, all those, so you wouldn't necessarily go to the, the, the doctor. Whereas, as you say, if you're in your, and that's important, I think, that point you just mentioned, because if you're in your 40s or 50s, your expectations for, for what you're able to do are very different. So when things aren't going right, you would you know, I, I think seek medical attention sooner. Absolutely. And yeah. and it's interesting, even with the younger onset Alzheimer's patients, they're not always sure if you have Alzheimer's or another kind of dementia, but they all seem to manifest themselves in the same way with, with the same symptoms, the same treatment, which is basically no treatment, just managing the process. I mean, there are some drugs that are given. There are some... Um, memory exercises, things like that. But it's at this point still an incurable disease and almost all of these dementias are incurable. Uh, but in fact, the Alzheimer's Association doesn't differentiate. They really serve people with every kind of dementia because you don't know. And one of the, one of the people in the book who got younger onset Alzheimer's just found out after the book was already published, he just found out recently he doesn't have Alzheimer's. He has another kind of dementia. But it looked like Alzheimer's. And he's been working with the Alzheimer's Association for years as an advocate for the other younger onset patients. So all of his symptoms were identical to Alzheimer's, but now it's been medically proven he has a different type of dementia. A dementia that can be, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, I forgot to mention to you that um, all of the royalties from this book are going to the Alzheimer's Association. And we do that occasionally. We'll use one of our books as a major fundraiser for a nonprofit because that's been our mission for 21 years. You know, we're, we're always uh, using our books to raise money for for charities and nonprofits. And so, this is our biggest effort to date. This Alzheimer's book, with all the royalties going to the Alzheimer's Association. So, we expect that we will be raising tens of thousands of dollars for the association, which is fabulous. And they do such an amazing job. And yeah, they do. And I wanted you to mention, you know, because they have a website, uh, you know, that listeners can go to as well. You know, you, to, you can go to a website to buy the book, but you can also go to the Alzheimer's Association, right, to get more information. A little, you yeah, know, we, some of the topics we, yeah, it's an amazing website. It's alz.org, and they have on there. All kinds of resources. If you're wondering if someone in your family has the disease or if you have it, if you're looking for a support group, because support groups are incredibly important for the newly diagnosed and for the caregivers, and that's another huge theme in the book, the incredible value of support groups to everybody involved. Um, the Alzheimer's Association. Amy, I just want to ask you, uh, the, and we'll go back to that, but because you're, you're talking about support group, I agree that's to, that is key. Did you find that more, I mean, women tend, I think, to seek help, and I talk about this on the show a lot, uh, more easily or more readily than men. Did you find, for instance, in terms of spouses or partners, that if a woman is feeling frustrated, she will go to a support group? Men tend not to want to share their intimate what they consider intimate uh, problems within the family with other people. Any differences there? Um, yeah, we had a number of people talking about support groups. Um, when the men go, they tend to go with their wives. So their wives bring them to the support group, 
And um, sometimes that's because they are together caring for an elderly parent or it's because one of them has been diagnosed and so they go to a support group for people who are diagnosed and their caregivers to go together. And so, yeah, we mainly saw the men going when their wives took them. Um, but, But everybody, including the men, talked about how great the support groups were for them. And you can find those in every community in the country. Um, if not one that is run by the Alzheimer's Association, then you'll find one run by a local hospital, a local nursing home, um, a temple, a church. I mean, they're, they're everywhere, these support groups, because there are more than 5 million people affected by Alzheimer's and dementia in this country, and there are more than 15 million caregivers affected. It's really what? an epidemic. Yeah, at Epideca, and probably, uh, there are probably more than that. You know, you know, as you say, some people don't even go to get help until really much, much later, so that, uh, you know, the statistics are probably less, reflect less uh, people who are affected. Wouldn't you say? There's probably oh, even definitely. more. Yeah. Because you could have somebody who's starting to show the early signs, but then perhaps some, they die of something else. You know, before they, before the, the Alzheimer's could become completely obvious. You know, if it's, if somebody's elderly, something else might affect them also. So they don't get far enough along with the Alzheimer's for it to be, you know, brutally obvious. Um, but the Alzheimer's Association says that it looks like only 4% of the people affected by Alzheimer's in the United States actually avail themselves of the association's services, which is crazy. But I know just from talking to my own friends that they were not aware of the Alzheimer's Association and all of its resources. And so we tried to highlight those in the book. We have a lot of stories where people talk about going to an art class or a support group or something else run by the association. And then at the beginning of each chapter, we have a little blurb that we've taken from a section of the Alzheimer's Association's website just to give people a feeling for what is, a, is available to them there. Well, then so, this is so important. I mean, this book, Amy, is so important. If you're talking about 4%, uh, you know, we only have like two minutes left, and this is a whole different topic. But, you know, I wonder, is there any kind of... Uh, shame associated with the diagnosis or, or any reason other than just the fact that people aren't aware or they don't know the facilities are out there? Or is there any reason why they, they, they know the facilities out there that they don't go there because there's a stigma? Is there? There used to be a stigma, and maybe there still is for some people, but I think there's a growing awareness now that this is just a disease. It's not senility. It's a disease. And, you know, remember how decades ago people wouldn't say if they had cancer, and now everybody's completely open about that. I think Alzheimer's is very much moving in that direction now, and I haven't encountered anybody I know among my friends who are in their 50s. I haven't encountered anybody who's reluctant to talk about a parent having Alzheimer's. Yeah, that's that's very true. I, I, I absolutely remember people cancer was hush hush nobody wanted to talk about it and so you were and all of these I guess how we handle all of these diseases and see it as a disease uh, it evolves and obviously you're doing great work and I want to mention the name of the book again because people because the, you know, the monies do go to the Alzheimer's Association Chicken Soup for the Soul 
uh, living with Alzheimer's and other dementias. And we've been talking to Amy Newmark, um, who is a publisher and editor-in-chief. This is a a great book. And uh, so people don't have to be alone. I guess that's what I keep, you know, as they they really don't have to suffer alone, whether you're the patient or whether you are the caregiver. And uh, uh, I guess that last statistic you just mentioned, that's kind of... That's startling to me. Only four. It is. So I'm yeah. very proud of this book and what we're able to do for people. And I know from the love letters we've been getting already that it's making a very big difference. And in fact, it went, it became a national bestseller um, the moment it came out and it got to number 14 on Amazon, which was pretty incredible for such a specialized topic. Congratulations. That's, that's Thank you. great. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. I really, really. I got a lot of new information. I know listeners did as well. So Amy Newmark, Chicken chicken Soup for the Soul, Living with Alzheimer's and Other Dementias. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you. We're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. Uh, You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Now there's a new destination for video content. VoiceAmerica.tv Just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7. VoiceAmerica.tv If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support you. There is a species that remains undiscovered by modern science. This species is known by many names, but most commonly known as Bigfoot. Join Todd Standing and Dr. Jeff Meldrum for Bigfoot North, a program that sets out to uncover the species that has eluded modern science, but that does truly exist. Expert and celebrity guests will be on hand to discuss both the scientific evidence and conclusive fact of the species on this planet. Bigfoot North airs live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Jovita Bidlowska and her new book, and her first book, actually, her first uh, publication, uh, is called Drunk Mom, and it's a memoir. It's a memoir about the struggles of addiction and motherhood. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Yovita. Thank you so much for having me. So, obviously, this is your story. This is your story about your addiction, about the birth of your son, uh, how you started drinking, and uh, it's your story. So, uh, and you really, you're drinking you became a full-blown alcoholic, um, mm-hmm. and uh, hence the title, Drunk Mom. Mm-hmm. And, it's, you, and as I understand it, you live in tr- Toronto? And it, That's right, Toronto, Canada, yeah. yeah. 
All right, so how did this all start? I mean, having a baby, obviously, and I've had three, is a traumatic experience, mm-hmm. granted. Uh, so is that what it started with? Is that was the trigger for your drinking, or had you been drinking before? Or, you know, how did this all evolve? Sure. Um, well, I, I identified as an alcoholic in my late 20s, um, you know, after a couple of years of, of partying too hard, but also noticing that, you know, that my drinking was a little different than the one of my peers. Um, and after that, I was sober for three and a half years. Um, I, you know, great life, uh, job and, you know, I, I got a job in, in my career field. Um, I've got my relationship back, all, all that great stuff. Um, and then I got pregnant. Uh, pregnancy, you know, went quite well. Um, and after giving birth to my son, we had some friends over um, and they brought gifts uh, and cards and, you know, uh, there was a bottle of champagne. Someone handed me a glass um, and I and I had that, you know, I had a couple of sips, you know, without thinking too much about it. Uh, but, you know, I, I like to say that for, for an addict like myself, um, the only thing I benefit from and the only way for me to stay sober is, is abstinence. So, you know... Um, that couple of sips just opened the door to to full-blown relapse. You know, it's a gutsy book because, and I think just the title is gutsy, Drunk Mom, because we don't like to think about moms being drunk. And if they are, we don't want to say it or admit it, Uh, Mm -hmm. especially if you are the drunk mom, but nobody else does either. So Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's it's an important book for that reason, that Mm -hmm. you were able to admit it and to really talk about what you the whole process of you of of uh, being drink, being an addict while mm-hmm. taking care of a newborn and um, what prompted you to write the book like to expose yourself? Mm-hmm. Um, well, a couple of things. I, I I do want to just address what you you know what you said in the beginning. I mean, uh, to me, addiction is an equal opportunity offender. You know, your your status and and who you are and where you were born doesn't really matter. I mean, it will, if you know, if you have predisposition or if you're in a situation where you're vulnerable, it, it will get you. I mean, there's, there's kind of no, you know, no protecting yourself from it um, other than, you know, uh, being very diligent about, about staying sober. Um, I, I wrote this book for, a, you know, a variety of reasons. Uh, one is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a writer. I tell stories. Um, this was a story that I knew quite well, and I started this book as fiction because of of the sort of denial that I was in, and then I decided to make it a memoir and and you know put a face and a name to to uh, an issue that's often stigmatized. So I wanted to explain addiction to people who don't understand it, and um, and some of these people were my loved ones, you know, who always ask me questions like, why can't you snap out of it? You know, what's wrong with you? Why can't you get sober um, for your son even if you can't do it for yourself? And it was very, you know, hard to, to explain what was happening in my head and this whole vicious cycle of addiction. So uh, the book is a form of a, you know, my letter of explanation, but I also thought, you know, it's not just my family that, that has an addict in their family, there are others. And, um, and I haven't read any book like that, um, you know, where, where someone just admits to, to how ugly. I mean, there are lots of addiction memoirs, but I haven't read one that, didn't end with a very straightforward narrative that, oh, I got sober and everything was happily ever after. I really wanted to talk about being at a present moment of addiction. Um, that's why I use present tense to sort of, you know, drop, re- drop you right into it. And I also wanted to, you know, open conversation about the stigma of addiction. Um, you know, in my case, it was in the context of raising a child. Um, 
you know, through that, I mean, I, I'm hoping to show that motherhood and love and this overwhelming love I had for him was no match for, for addiction, you know. Um, so, I mean, you know, it's, it's, I find addiction, you know, actual substance and what we do with it and, and drinking and, or using drugs or whatever uh, and dealing with it is one thing, but a huge part of addiction is secrecy, is denial, is being ashamed of it, you know. Um, we have studies that show that women particularly, you know, may experience greater stigma when it comes to substance use, you know. So a lot of women don't report their shame, you know, um, and that's, that was the case with me. I mean, I, I, I tried to get help, but there was part of me that saying, you know, once you admit it, like, they're on to you. So just keep lying and see where you can, you know. Yeah, and, and I think that the first part of what you said, Yavita, um, uh, is 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 really important because you were really painfully honest. I, I mean, I, and I read a lot of books also about uh, addictions, different kinds of addictions and alcohol, drugs, but you were so honest. And let, be really specific. Let's talk about it like in the beginning of the book where you talk about, I mean, here you have a new baby and I mean, you're hiding the booze and the and you're, and you're expending a lot of energy to, to mm-hmm. kind of maintain that de- denial. You're working double time and it's tiring enough to take care of a baby, but all the antics and all the stuff that you go through to hide the, the your drinking from your, your boyfriend and talk about that, you know, in detail. Sure. Um, I like that you said the word antics. <laughs> um, and, and that it was a, almost like a, having another full-time job. So there were, you know, there was me trying to be a mom, a first-time mom, and, and looking, um, you know, to the outside world like the perfect urban mom, you know, with a loving family and with this with this lovely baby and a, and a stroller, and then there was the addict part. Um, so you know what you mentioned, hiding alcohol. So I mean, I had all kinds of strange, horrible routines where I would you know I would have to get rid of bottles or, or cans, um, and I would you know put them in a diaper bag on the bottom of the stroller um, and dispose of them because once they were gone, it's the problem didn't exist, you know. Um, and, you know, I also hid bottle, bottles of, of formula because I, I was officially, you know, breastfeeding and people were very encouraging of that, but I didn't want to, you know, breastfeed them with, you know, with alcohol in my system. So I had, you know, I would set up alarm clock on my, uh, on my computer because I would go out with my computer to sort of tell me when it was okay to breastfeed him, but I still felt terrible about it, so I, I used a lot of formula. So there was two kinds of bottles that I was hiding. Um, in terms of antics, you know, there was part of me, too, that as much as I love being a new mom, as much as I love my son, and I, and I say, you know, I loved him from the first ultrasound. I mean, I was just overjoyed to, to become a mom. But as much as all those things were happening, there was a strange nostalgia in me that didn't necessarily miss drinking, but it missed, you know, me living in a city and, and being in my early 30s and seeing, you know, friends still having this sort of, uh, you know, fun life without a lot of responsibilities. And, and uh, so, you know, so I've, I try to um, go to, you know, I go to uh, Montreal and for a fun weekend and it just goes disastrous, um, quite pathetic, you know. And, um, I mean, I talked about all these experiences to show how addiction and what we do is, you know, it's a sham, but it, the, the secrecy and the lying and the 
even the lies we tell ourselves are, are really what gets us, you know, because that, that prevents us from getting help as well. Um, if you don't admit, admit there's a problem, there's no problem. So. Yeah, and, and you take us through that process. I'm thinking about, well, two things you just mentioned. I think one of the things that's difficult, even when you don't have an addiction problem, you know, kind of grieving the loss. You know, the expectation is you're a new mom, everything should be wonderful and great, and you should be happy. And, and hey, you know what? This is It's a whole new set of responsibilities. You're in your early 30s. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had this single life that was exciting. And as you say, you, you could have gone to Montreal whenever you wanted to, uh, it, it kind of hits you in the face. And, you know, mm-hmm. obviously your way of coping, you know, ha- was was drinking. But uh, I, I think that it's difficult for many women to even admit that, uh, hey, this, you know, this isn't quite what I signed up for in terms mm-hmm. of motherhood, even though I adore and love my baby and my child. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and I think that that comes mm-hmm. out in the book, which is I think it's important for women to hear. And men. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I felt that there was, you know, there is this sort of double standard, this expectation of women sort of just knowing what to do. Um, And, I I mean, men as well, but I find, you know, we're we're sort of, it's as if we're, you know, I talk about this in my book. Uh, I sort of compare it to suddenly being, uh, you know, a queen of a kingdom that you have no idea how to rule. Like you're giving all these responsibility and this, you know, uh, and you're isolated as well. I mean, you kind of, you're, you live in this bubble suddenly with this, you know, with this little human being that completely depends on you. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's just, it's, uh, it's you know, driving a car without knowing how to drive it. So... <laughs> But you, okay, and then you started, and as the book goes on, I hate to sometimes give the whole book away, but, um, you know, your denial, mm-hmm. is, I don't know if the word is faded, but you decided maybe you needed some help, not AA help necessarily, mm-hmm. but some, what did you call it, light rehab. So what's light rehab? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I think with the, you know, with me getting help, it was kind of, you know, uh, if it came from this thinking, which I think a lot of sort of beginner addicts have, if I can use that term, that, um, you know, there's some sort of magic solution that will fix it, right? Like, I will take a, I, I want to say the word pill, and it's probably bad in this context, but I want to take a magic pill or, uh, you know, take a course that will help me to uh, to deal with my addiction. Um, so in my case, you know, I, I tried a couple of things. You know, the first was uh, I attended this uh, harm reduction group where you, uh Pick how many drinks you're gonna have in a week, and you know. So, I, you know, silly thing I did is, you know, I went from four drinks. I picked number four, and I immediately changed it to number eight, just to give myself more room. So that was, you know, that was kind of, I was trying to, you know, con myself even in this situation. Um, I go to rehab for three weeks, and you know, the way I went to rehab. In the context of actually this book is because I started writing it as fiction. I went to rehab with a notebook um, telling myself I was going there for research because I was researching this book about a mother who drinks. So, again, not really serious about it, you know. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't talk about it in a book, but, I, you know, I talked to my doctor about, you know, possibly going on some medication. Like, anything where I didn't have to do too much work, where I didn't have to face my, my own lies too much. Um, I was into that. <laughs> so. 
Did you feel that you got any, there was any, I mean, what would you say, uh, describe the critical, is there a critical mass when you decided, I have to stop drinking completely? I mean, that there was something or many things that just kind of hit you at the same time? Yeah. Was it more, yeah. I think it was just repetition, you know, it's, it's, um, Life of an addict can be quite boring. It is quite boring. I mean, you know, it's it's kind of a routine. Drinking, being sober, feeling guilty. Drinking, being sober, feeling guilty, right? And trying to do all the other life in that context. And in my case, you know, the consequences were sort of piling up. And not necessarily, you know, any sort of dramatic things, but, but just my guilt kept, you know, getting bigger and bigger and the shame and my you know, the extent of the lies I had to make up to uh, to deal with the situation. And then I started to have some real consequences. You know, my partner definitely onto it and saying, you know, you're going to have to move out one more time and you're going to have to move out. Um, so that sort of accumulated to not necessarily bring me to my, to my rock bottom, as they call it, but <clears throat> my rock bottom, I would say, was when I realized that I needed to leave my my son's life in order to for him to to be okay. Um, you know, I I got to such you know self hate stage where I you know I said you know no matter how much I love him, I have to leave him if I love him because I'm I'm gonna you know cause harm or I'm gonna like something's bad gonna happen. And I think to get to that point of despair. Um, I think that's a rock bottom, just mentally. Um, Do you think that most people have to, I mean, I know there's controversy about that. And Okay, mm-hmm. in your experience, you did reach rock bottom. Now, I've spoken to some people who say, well, I didn't necessarily have to reach rock bottom. Do you think you do, or, or you'll just revert back to, to the drinking or to the addiction? Um, well, I'm not an addiction expert, so I, I shouldn't you know, offer any sort of uh, information as, as, as an addiction expert. But I, I find that you know, the, the rock bottom, I think, as we understand, is something you know, dramatic, right? Like what we see in movies or, or read in books, you know, that I, I woke up in jail or something like that, or I, I had an alcoholic seizure. Um, I think <clears throat> I would define rock bottom as more of a mental um, awareness of what's going on and facing yourself. Um, you know, I heard from a, from a, a psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, he said, you know, that you get this moment of clarity that's kind of combined with your rock bottom where you are with yourself for the first time and there's, there's nothing else around you. Um, and if you take advantage of that, you know, you can, you can sometimes get better. So, yeah, I think rock bottom, I mean, for some people, rock bottom is spiritual, you know, when you lose total faith and, and hope in, in life. So, yeah, so it's not a dramatic set of events. I don't, know, I don't know if you have to reach that in order to get better, because I know that some people know, you know, they have ultimatums, ultimatums put on by, by family members saying, you know, you're going to go to 12-step meetings or I kick you out, and, and they go and they suddenly something clicks and they get better, so... Yeah, everyone's different, I think. Yeah, so everybody's experience, as you say, can be different, but I'm glad you clarified that because mm-hmm. rock bottom can be mental rock bottom, not necessarily mm-hmm. that you end up in jail or on the street or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in another country or wherever you are, So, or, <laughs> or a spiritual rock bottom. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah that, that, that is very different than kind of a physical rock bottom. Mm-hmm. Do you have to go to AA to maintain your health? I mean, your, your mental health and not going back to drinking. Uh, are, are there other organizations that want, I mean, this is just your experience, mm-hmm. um, that one can go to, or is it 
is it only going to work if one goes to AA? Oh, no, I, I don't want to be in any way spokesperson for it. Uh, but what I, what I would say is that you should probably do yourself, I mean, if you're struggling with addiction or if you know someone, try absolutely everything that's available to you. So, you know, even harm reduction programs, even if there's, you know, outpatient uh, rehab or, or inpatient, whatever you have available, try it. And as well as 12-step meetings because... I think that when you're ready, something will stick. You know, I, I talk about going to 12-step meetings because that was my first exposure to something that, you know, would help me stay sober. Um, so I just simply went back to what I knew worked in the past. Um, now, at the same time, you know, 12-step meetings are sort of the, the one place where you can go sort of anywhere at any point of a day, and there's, you know, there's a strong sense of community. Um, so, so, you know, it's... It's probably, and it's, you know, we, they have enough exposure, even through media. You always see, you know, people sitting in, in, in 12-step meetings in, in a sort of, in a circle. So, um, so we're exposed to it. But did you walk in, when you went to your first 12-step meeting, mm-hmm. did you walk in there, the first one, and say, mm-hmm. how did I get here? Is this for me? I mean, am I like these other people? I mean, did those things go through your mind, or should I not even be here? Um, I, the first meeting, I just remember being astonished at how many, how many different people there were because, my, you know, my, my idea of an alcoholic was, you know, a guy drinking behind a dumpster out of a paper bag, right? And then I was okay. kind of, uh, you know, evidence that that wasn't, that wasn't that one person. I mean, I was, I was someone else completely. So when I went to my first meeting, I remember, you know, I did see that sort of guy, but I also saw, you know, a woman in a, you know, in a, in a Chanel suit, you know, crying at the table, and I saw all kinds of people. So I certainly didn't feel like, you know, I was at the wrong place. Now, you know, it's possible that someone will walk, walk into a meeting that will be full of, you know, guys from behind a dumpster. I mean, I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's all different. But you have to remember that wherever you go, you know, in 12-step meetings, you're there for yourself. So it doesn't matter what it looks like to the outside world. It doesn't really matter what people think of you. You are there to help yourself. And that's the only thing that you have to remember. Yeah, I think that's critical. We have two more, obviously. It's, we, I, we're not going to re- reveal the rest of the story. Uh, you can buy Drunk Mom online and at bookstores everywhere. Uh, and do we have a – we only have – because we only have a couple minutes, um, it would be to give me or give us a website that we can go to uh, to find out more about the book and or you. Um, yeah, so to find out more about me or particularly all the media I had so far, and then there's some some clips as well from uh, from TV interviews. So it would be my first and last name. Do you want me to spell it or do you have a I website? I think you should. <laughs> okay, so it's go ahead. J O W I T A B as in Barbara, Y-D, as in Dorothy, L-O-W-S-K-A.com. Um, so that's my website. Uh, and also I have a Facebook page, and just under my first and last name, Jovita Bedlovska, it's an author page. Um, so that's, uh, that's sort of to find out more about me. I, I do link to the book as well on my website. So, and there, there are some numbers as well. If you're, you know, if you're actually looking there to to find out about help, so great. Thanks so much for sharing part of the story this morning, and uh, hopefully everyone will go out and, and find out the rest of the story. Drunk Mom, a memoir. Um, Yovita Bidlowski, 
Thank you. Thank you, Yovita. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Hope you enjoyed the show today. Enjoy your week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.